0: Every year I look forward to Youth Sunday, and uh, this year the the band kicked me out. So I like that. I've been working towards that. These guys can these guys can run it without me. I love that. And uh, so it's been exciting to see the musical growth, but it's also exciting to see how. Your children, your teens grow in the Lord in so many ways. So this is the one part of the service we can't really turn over to them. None of them are on their way to getting ordained. or It's kind of our standard here. Maybe someday, huh? So this morning we're in Exodus. And uh, we are leaving Revelations for a little bit. Uh, Rich has finished his... Series on the five solas. So I thought we would just dip into the Old Testament a little bit. Um, just a random uh, story here, but it's really not random because I'm also using it for my Hebrew exegesis paper and for my ordination sermon. So you guys are the guinea pigs for this. Hope you don't mind. So as, as we read, as you'll see, this. Exodus 17, 1 through 7, the main question that Israel is asking is, is the Lord among us or not? That is a question that I know people here are asking themselves. They may not be saying it out loud, they may not be coming up to the pastors and saying, is God really... Here, because we all can answer that intellectually and theologically, sure. But in various ways, we are asking, is God with me, with us or not? There's new parents who want to know if God is going to be with them as they raise their child and to protect them. There are new marriages that are wondering if God is going to walk with them in their new marriage. There are men and women here whose companies are failing, who have taken pay cuts, that are applying for new jobs, wondering if God really cares about their work lives, or their finances. There are those living without a loved one who has died recently, asking where was God when they died? And will he be with me in my grief? There are those moving to a different state or or starting over in college next year who are hoping that God will open doors for them and be there for the tough times that they're going to face. There are marriages that are fracturing. There is health failing. There are parents who are so worried about their kids who are showing no sign of embracing their faith. So there's any number of small and large ways that we are asking that question to ourselves. Is the Lord among us? And Does he care for us and act in our lives? So because we're just jumping into Exodus, I want to give you a little bit of uh, background, context of the setting where we are. The first 15 chapters of Exodus are moving Israel out of Egypt. The whole deliverance with the plagues and the Passover and the Red Sea crossing. And so we've got 15 chapters chapters to describe that. Then we've got a few chapters right in the middle that begin to tell us about the wilderness experience of the Israelites. And then from chapter 19 on, they get to Mount Sinai. And God gives them the Ten Commandments and explains the law. And so this is in those middle chapters between Egypt and Sinai. Of course, the, the ultimate goal is the promised land, Canaan, right? So we're early on in the wandering years. And if you'll remember some of these stories, they, they kinda, the Israelites' complaints to God kind of fit two patterns. The first pattern is they bring a complaint God punishes them. Moses intercedes, and there is a reprieve. The punishment is taken away. So, a couple examples of this we've got Numbers 11. The people complain, God sends fire, and then Moses prays, and it dies out. Uh, number 16 the people turn against Moses and Aaron, so God sends a plague. That Aaron has to burn incense to make atonement, and the plague stops. Numbers 21, the Lord sends a fiery serpent when the people complain. And Moses has to make a bronze serpent that they look up to. So that's, this all fit very well, pattern one, where there is punishment. The Lord is angry with his people for complaining. Pattern two is a little different, and we see that a lot here in Exodus, where there's a need, and the people complain. Moses still intercedes, and there's a miracle at the end. We've just seen how God, in uh, chapter 15, he had provided, there was bitter water, and so he tells Moses to throw a log in it, I believe, and it sweetens up the water, and then there's no food. God provides the manna from heaven. So this story, this historical account, fits that second pattern. So I've asked Mary Grace, Barber to come up and read the scripture for us. Exodus
1: 17, 1-7 All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the now, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you before... And you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. So Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not?
0: Thanks. Now when I mention this uh, story to some people, they said, oh yeah, the story of Moses striking the rock. And he struck it twice, right? And then he was per- forbidden from entering the promised land. This is, this is a different story. We need to separate those. That happens in, in Numbers 20, where God, again, meets the thirst of the Israelites and says, speak to the rock, Moses. And instead, Moses strikes it twice, and he is forbidden to enter the promised land because of that. But this is a different story. So let's keep those, those separate. So as we look, as we work through the text, you notice that the Israelites begin, they're, they're murmuring, they're grumbling, right? And, and it, it kind of catches on, and it, it, they raise it up, they start accusing Moses of bringing them out to the wilderness just to kill them. And as that gets even stronger, Moses fears for his life. Doesn't say exactly what they said or did, but he thinks that he's going to get stoned if nothing happens here. Teachers, you've probably heard this kind of grumbling. It's not just that you're making our lives hard. You're trying to fail us. I remember I taught for a year, and oh, man, kids will try anything to guilt you and making it easy for you. I'm, and this is a hypothetical, I'm sure, for, for most of us. But don't kids say that? Dad, you're so hard. You hate me. Can't believe you're not going to let me do that. Moses is hearing this. Not only do you not provide for us, you brought us out here to kill us. You better watch yourself, Moses. So you see how this fits that pattern we talked about. The need, where's the water? The complaint, you're trying to kill us, Moses, give us water intercession, Moses goes to the Lord and says, what do I do? These people are about to stone me. And then the miracle that God says, come, bring the elders, strike the rock, and water will come out. So it's a pretty simple story, right? Standard miracle we get from from God. We can wrap it up here. You guys got it all. But there are some real gems in this story that uh, are worth uncovering as we look through, as we unpack this text. Um, The first thing I want to look at is the titles that are used here. Because we know that the, the scriptures are history, but they're selective history. right? Moses could have written about any thousand things that happened in the wilderness, but he selects certain stories. And so we need to ask ourselves, why did he select this one? And often the titles And he gives places, give us a real clue. We know that when they got there, the name of the place was Rephidim, which means resting place. And sure, the Israelites were stopped there, camping out, a bit of a rest. But how ironic that no one's getting rest. There's no peace about this place when there's no water, when your needs are not being met. Neither the leader nor the people are getting any rest here ultimate rest will be found in the promised land. But even then, the people don't obey and so the people, their enemies, continue to chase them. So we need new names for this place and, and Moses says that we, we, we renamed it. Two names. Massa and Meribah. And those give us a real clue as to what how this story functions. Masah is from the Hebrew word nasa, It means to test or to tempt or to try. Very famous verse in Deuteronomy. I'm sure you've heard the first part of it. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Masah. So you've heard the first part. Don't put the Lord your God to the test. Here, Moses reminds us as you did at Massah, this very story. And then he says, You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you. So testing in this sense is simple disobedience. And we say this to our kids all the time, right? Do this, don't test me. Don't try me. Just do it. We get that sense here with the Israelites. They are testing God because they don't believe. And they don't want to obey. Now, test, a test is, can be a neutral thing. It can be a positive thing. The Lord tests his people. We're told in Genesis 22 that God tested Abraham when he sent him to sacrifice his son Isaac. Isaac. God passes the test. In fact, we're also told in Exodus 15 that the whole wilderness experience was a bit of a test. In verses 15 and 16, God said, "...there the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes..." I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. The Lord is testing his people through these experiences. And so you see what's happening. The Israelites turn this situation, which was a test, a time of testing for them, into a test of God. We've got to contrast that with the way Jesus passes his test. And I hope as you read the scriptures, especially the Old Testament, certainly if you're in Rich's Sunday School class, you are reminded to look for foreshadowing and uh, types and anti-types of Christ. And here is a good anti-type. In other words, this isn't what Jesus would do. And if you remember, early on, as Jesus is beginning his ministry, what does he do? The Spirit drives him out to the wilderness for 40 days. You think it's a coincidence that it's 40 days to parallel Israel's 40 years? No. Jesus is fasting, hungry, tired, thirsty. But does he disobey? Does he grumble, argue, and complain, and threaten? No, in fact, Satan comes and offers him the highest temptations. And he quotes scripture to him back. In fact, that very one, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus passes the testing and doesn't test God back. So that's Massah, testing the Lord, disobeying. Meribah, means striving, arguing. You can have the sense of of dissatisfaction. Uh, The writer of Hebrews tells us it's rebellion. It's one thing to disobey God. It's another thing to go after Him, to go confront Him or His representatives, to rebel and to argue with Him and challenge His authority in your life. Psalm 95, you're going to see, if, as you read the scriptures, this Massah and Meribah come up over and over. Psalm 95, uh, verses 8 and 9, speaks of these names as well. Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. So what grieves the Lord there? that they disobey, but also that he had already shown them what he's capable of. He's shown them how he provides miraculously, how he comes through for their every need, and still they challenge him, and still they don't trust him, and they disobey. I mean, we've just seen in the previous chapter how God provided miraculously food for them out of the sky. And rather than going to him and saying, Okay, Lord, we got the food. Can we have some water to go with that? It's challenging and arguing and complaining. So next, let's let's take a look at some of the images in this text. The first image we have is the wilderness. And I don't want to tread too lightly there because we need to understand how difficult that was. Forty years in the wilderness. Have you spent any time in the desert lately? I mean, literally. I mean, I, I get dehydrated and miserable just hanging out at the beach for a couple hours. I don't want to be in a desert for any length of time. And so I understand how hard it is to keep going. And I can't imagine living my life in the wilderness. And you think of the Egyptian, or the, the Israelites had plundered Egypt. You remember that? When they left, God said, Take as much as you can. And so they took their gold and possessions. I'm sure they loaded their pockets, their saddlebags with all the grain, all the food they could take. But 40 years, that stuff runs out in a couple months. And where are you going to get new provisions? Unless you're raiding the town or living on the coast you have, but they're in the wilderness. They have nowhere to turn. You'd think that God brought them out there to teach them to rely on him. And it's such a cool lesson they've just learned with the manna. Do you remember? God says, with the manna, only take what you're going to eat every day. Don't store it up. If you store it, it's going to turn into maggots the next day. Because I want you to trust me that it's coming every single day. So the wilderness teaches us about how we trust God. The second image in the story, in the account, is the staff. This is the same one that that God says... The same one that you used on the Nile, on the Red Sea. Um, And there's a few other times. Remember Exodus 4, when God first calls Moses. Moses says, well, what do I do if they don't know, if they don't believe that you sent me? God says, what's that in your hand? It's a staff. He says, throw it down. Turns into a snake. Pick it back up. It turns back. This is your proof that I'm with you. Exodus 14, yeah, Moses holds it over the Red Sea, and it parts. If you keep reading in Exodus 17, it's the very staff that he's going to hold up as the Israelites are battling the Amalekites. And as he holds it, they win. And it's kind of like a survivor challenge as it starts to drop. They start losing. So they got to prop it up with a rock, and they start winning again. Moses' staff is often God's instrument. But we have to realize, of course, that it had no power on its own. The staff is the symbol of God's power and His presence with His people. And finally, the the last image we have is the rock. And I don't know if you caught that in what we read, but God is going to stand on the rock. Now, there may be a few explanations for that. The most obvious is maybe there were a bunch of rocks, and God had to mark out the exact one. He didn't want him to go striking all the different ones. He, this specific rock, and that, that could, be, it could be that simple. The other reason may be that he was standing there to remind the elders to remind Moses, anybody that was watching, that yeah, this is my power. This isn't the rock it has no power in itself. The staff doesn't. It's not Moses. It's me. It's because I'm standing here letting this happen. But I think there's even a deeper sense to why God stands on this rock. I think there's a strong case to be made that God is in a sense standing Trial in front of the Israelites. And he is actually taking a punishment upon himself. Now you may be looking at me going, gosh, this guy's been in seminary way too long. He sees all these images of the crucifixion all over the Old Testament and where is he getting this? Well, you can blame this one on R.C. Sproul and uh, Ligonier... Uh, The Table Talk magazine, I got it from them. Here's what they said. He, God, told Moses to go to the rock of Horeb and to smite the rock. God himself would stand on the rock and be identified with it. God would stand before the people. The judicial language is strong here. God would take the place of the accused and receive the punishment of the rod. And just so you don't think they made that up too, we've got 1 Corinthians 10.4. Paul comments on the passage. He says, They drank from the spiritual rock, and the rock was Christ. We'll look at that passage more in a minute. But just this understanding that God himself, you want to try me? You want to put me on trial They're testing him. I'll stand trial, and I will receive the blow. And Christ himself is the rock that receives it. And this isn't the first time we've seen this in the Old Testament. Do you remember when God made the covenant with Abraham? They tore wild animals and and made a path and put them on either side. And what they did back then was the two people who were going to make a covenant, walked through it. And it symbolized, it was them saying, if I break this covenant, may I be torn apart like these animals. So I'm sure Abraham's sitting there going, okay, we'll walk through it, but what does God do? God puts him to sleep, and he passes through by himself. It's just a small uh, easy way. God says, I will take the punishment if this covenant is broken. And he did. Exodus 16, the, what I keep referring to with the manna from heaven, we can see that as an image of Christ's incarnation. That God provides the bread from heaven. What, is, what does Jesus call himself? The bread of life. And so, this is an image, a foreshadow of Christ's incarnation coming to earth. And then, Exodus 17 is the foreshadowing of Christ being crucified. Remember the words of Isaiah 53:5. He was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, our sins, and by his stripes or his wounds, we are healed. So as we, as we move into how we apply this passage, what we can learn from this, I want you to consider the idea that the whole Exodus narrative is a great parallel to our spiritual lives. Listen carefully, see if this sounds familiar. Freedom from bondage by divine deliverance. Judgment passing over because of the blood of a lamb leading into a long stage of testing and refining where one learns to trust God while fighting the enemies that try to pull away from faith and finally being brought to the promised land at the end of the journey it describes the whole wilderness wandering the exodus into the promised land it also describes our spiritual lives as we are justified, sanctified. We walk through the of Salutis as we are saved, start to finish, to glorification. But Let's listen again to what we had for the responsive reading. And let's see how Paul instructs us to understand uh, these wilderness narratives for our lives. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10. If you want to pull that up in your Bible too. (coughs) For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. So, Paul gives us this broad overview of how we are to learn from the negative example of the wilderness generation. Don't desire evil, don't fall into idolatry or sexual immorality. Don't test God. Don't grumble. We've got all these great things that we learn. But what can we learn from these specific passages, these seven verses? Number one, don't stone your pastor when things are crumbling around you. He might be able to help. People were ready to turn on Moses so often. And yet, what was he? The intercessor. And maybe we include all the authority figures here. Teachers, parents, the government. And how easy is it for us to turn on those who are over us? When things aren't going your way. I got I to say this is it? And you can blame Catherine Larson. Is she she up there? She recommended this book for me. Stuff Christians Like. It's a funny book if you get to it. It's by Jonathan Acuff. And he talks about you gotta have a good sense of humor to laugh at us, ourselves. Um, But he says, the most spiritual reason that people leave churches is I'm just not being fed. Right? And so that sounds really good and it's a nice way of saying that they don't know how to preach and teach at that church. And uh, so Jonathan says, you know what? Pastors are getting wise to that, though. Because now they're saying, well, when I feed a one-year-old a baby, it's appropriate. It's a little embarrassing to be feeding a 22-year-old. Here's a spoon. Go feed yourself. <laughs> you had to throw that in there. <laughs> we don't need that one here. But the flip side of this is to pastors, to leaders. When your people come after you and they complain and threaten, take it to the Lord. I'm going to turn to you guys. Sure, answer them. Figure out how you can come to some resolution, but ultimately do not carry that burden. Give it to the Lord. Let Him handle it. God has given us each other, leaders, people, learn to lead, learn to follow, and take it up with him when things break down, work through it. Second way I think, even deeper, that this passage teaches is that when we complain about our lives, it shows our ingratitude and our lack of faith ingratitude for what God has already done and a lack of faith for what he will do. God has shown himself just as faithful in our lives as in the lives of the Israelites. Not as spectacularly or obvious as the Red Sea parting, but everything in your life has not only been allowed and ordained by God, but as James 1.17 says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He not only allows it, he gives it. Can we learn from the Israelites ingratitude? when God had just supplied them with everything they need and as soon as they get thirsty again they start threatening rather than going to God and asking. I don't know if this happens at your house but sometimes we go around the table before meals and just one thing you're thankful for. Oh, I can't think of anything I'm thankful for. Another hypothetical. I'm sure that doesn't happen at your house. Like, it doesn't happen at mine. (laughs) But I don't know what their kids think. It has to be something amazing. I mean, oftentimes they do figure things out. Thanks for my birthday presents. Thanks for Dad taking us to Chuck E. Cheese. You know, the big things, the important things. (laughs) But when there's nothing major going on, oh, what am I supposed to be thankful for? I just can't think. And we just, try, we just sit there and go, how about everything in your life? How about you just catalog the many, many things? But we're like that just as much, if not more, than our kids. John Calvin says, As soon as anything occurs contrary to the wishes of one who distrusts God, he has recourse to murmuring and dispute." It's kind of the opposite of the song we sing, uh, Blessed Be Your Name. Every blessing you pour out, I'll take for granted. When the darkness closes in, Lord, that will prove that you don't love me and give me what I need. It's a little different song than the way we sing it. I'll let you fill in the blanks for what in your life You don't feel like God's providing. And how you're disdaining the good gifts he has given you. One more passage that brings us back mentions Masa and Meribah in the New Testament. Hebrews, oops, did I already go past that? Oh yeah, there we go. Hebrews 3, 7 through 14. Were we already sitting on this one? Okay. Okay. And he, this is gonna, a lot of this is going to sound familiar because it's quoting Psalm 95 that I've already read. Um, but it kind of brings it all around for us. And the writer of Hebrews rebukes an evil, unbelieving heart. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today you hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, Meribah, on the day of testing, Massah, in the wilderness. This is quoting Psalm 95, but you know, it's... it's I guess translating it more than using those titles, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So that's the quote then Paul, or The writer of Hebrews goes on and says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So ultimately, we must answer The question, is the Lord with us or not? Is the Holy Spirit inside us or not? Does our Heavenly Father know everything about us and move and act in our lives? Again, intellectually and theologically, we know that answer is yes. But our lives and our attitudes often answer no. Finally, we, we need to see Christ as the rock of provision. For those who have never trusted Jesus Christ for salvation, I hope you heard the part that Jesus Christ suffered on the cross punishment that is due to every sinner. And when you claim that, your sins are forgiven. Your punishment is taken from you. But even those who trust Christ for salvation, we've got to see Him as our ongoing source for spiritual blessing, for spiritual need. When we're distressed and need help, may we walk up to that rock and tap its flowing waters. May we find Christ in prayer and ask for His Holy Spirit to meet us. He's the river that flows and provides in our lives. Let's close in prayer.
2: Let us pray. Dear God, dear God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, dear God, by who your will all things were created, dear God, who sits on the throne and rules over all things that you have created, dear God, who is almighty, ever powerful, and everlasting. I thank you that you are a God that is among us. I thank you, God, for sending your Holy Spirit to us and that it is your will to be with us. And I thank you, God, that we are not alone in this world and that we are always have you, God. I thank you, God, that that we can talk directly with you, God, because of your Son and your Holy Spirit. And I thank you, God, that you are here for me and everyone forever and ever. Amen.
1: You have to go ahead and stand for our closing song.